I had a great intro planned this morning with like quotes from different famous people about how they're never satisfied. And, uh, and I'm going to scrap that because as we were singing the first song this morning, we sang this line, Lord, there's nothing better than you. And we sang that over and over and over again. And I thought, do I believe that? Do I believe that? Lord, there's nothing better than you. I want to believe that. And in my head, I do. But when I, even just this morning, as I recounted the events of my week, and as I thought about all these famous people that I was going to throw under the bus because they don't find their satisfaction in the right place, I realized, neither do I. I spent most of my week giving more time and attention to things other than God. Lord, there's nothing better than you, really? If you guys reviewed my week, you'd be like, that pastor doesn't believe what he just sang, but I want to. And I think that's probably true for you as well. We stand and we sing, Lord, there's nothing better than you. And I hope that you want to believe that. And probably somewhere in your, 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 your religiously uh, informed mind and also your transformed spirit, you, you, you do. But there's a conflict with your actions. And we also sang this. I will be content in every circumstance. Again, is that true of me? Am I content in every circumstance? Absolutely not. I'm discontent half the time, most of the time. I don't know. It, and yet I want it to be true. And so thank you, church family, for gathering this morning to sing these songs because I need to rehearse the gospel truth. And I think you need to rehearse the gospel truth. And it wasn't good enough for me to rehearse the gospel truth alone this week. Because alone, I struggled to believe that there's nothing better than God. And alone, I struggled to be content in every circumstance. And even surrounded by you, I probably, I don't want to say I do for sure, because that seems weird to do while I'm preaching, but I, I probably still struggle to believe, even in this moment, that there's nothing better than God, and I probably still, in this moment, struggle to be content in every circumstance. But I'll tell you one thing, it feels easier when I'm surrounded by you hearing your voices. So thank you for being here, church family. And, and on this line, I, I'm, I'm going to skip over these quotes because we don't have a lot of time and we have a ton of scripture to cover. There's so many quotes from famous musicians and, 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 and public figures about how they're unsatisfied even though they've gained everything in the world. And C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, has this incredible quote that addresses this. That this lack of satisfaction that most of us feel regardless of our circumstance he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasure satisfies, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. It means earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse and to point us to the real thing. And so this morning, as we look at this long text, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 59, Jesus' big idea, I'm convinced for us this morning, is that Jesus meets us in our earthly desires, and he offers eternal satisfaction that can be found only in him. Jesus meets us in these earthly 
in these earthly desires. And, and every desire that we have, if you peel it back deep enough, it will point you to the fact that it can only be fully and eternally satisfied in Jesus. Like C.S. Lewis says, some of our earthly pleasures, they, they arouse these desires. They make us aware of these desires, but they point us to the fact that try and try and try as we might, the world and what it offers us cannot fully satisfy And in John chapter 6, Jesus deals with his disciples and the crowds, and and he makes this point to them. You have earthly desires, fleshly desires, cravings, and you have physical needs. We're going to see in our text this morning that Jesus meets these physical needs, and that he's aware of our earthly desires and cravings and and longings. And, And in times and places, he'll meet those, but ultimately he wants to push us deeper so the eternal satisfaction that can only be found in him. And so this morning we're going <laughs> to we're, we're going to try and go through 59 verses. I'm not going to have you stand as I read it because I'm going to walk through it and hopefully we can get through this in time and if we run out of time we'll just pick it up again next Sunday. But pick it up in John chapter 6 verse 1. Open up a Bible. I I really want you to see what Jesus is saying on these words. Um, so open up a Bible and follow along. It's on page 891 in the Pew Bible if you don't have a Bible with you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible with you. John 6. You know what? I'm going to pause and pray again because I want to. Jesus, you are about to tell us in this passage that you are the bread of life. And that all who come to you will be eternally satisfied. Lord, any words that I have to add on, they just seem so insignificant and futile. And yet you've called us here to look at your word and to expound upon it. So, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word that we would hear your voice. Lord, help me to not make points that ought not to be made or observations that don't have a point for this moment. But, Lord, I pray that you would guide us, that you would direct us to see from this text what you would want us to see and experience from this text. Jesus, I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at this morning. You know the various earthly desires that we have, Lord, even before we know them. Some of us have suppressed our earthly desires so much we don't even know what they are. Lord, I pray that you would reveal them to us. I pray that you would uncover them and that they would point us to finding eternal satisfaction and life in you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, and that's after John chapter 5, when Jesus was having a conversation with the Jewish leaders. Matt preached that passage last week, and so uh, we're not going to recount that, but this is just a movement in the text here. What you'll notice, and what you should know, is as we go through the book of John, John is not as chronological as the other Gospels. John is kind of circular. He will talk in circles. He's more thematic, and so when it says, after this, Jesus went, there's, there's, there's not actually a point in most of John when he says that. It's just a transition to a new scene, a new story. And so don't get caught up in kind of the chronology of John because it's all over the place. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. 
Throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to see crowds following Jesus. We've already seen this, that there's people gathering around and behind Jesus because of the signs that he's doing, because he's meeting their earthly desires and their earthly needs. You remember a couple weeks ago, he healed a paralytic man. If you remember in chapter 2, he turned water into wine. He's meeting earthly desires. They're at a wedding. They're out of wine. They want more wine. He's like, here you go. This, this paralyzed man, he hasn't walked for 38 years, and Jesus says, get up and walk. But in all these instances, he's meeting their, their, their physical need or their earthly desire, but he's using it to point them to something deeper, something eternal, something spiritual. And this crowd, they don't quite grasp that. There's this, there's this, this is the journey of discipleship to Jesus, right? Trying to figure out how Jesus What Jesus does and who Jesus is conflicts with what we want Jesus to do and what we want Jesus to be. Our expectations of Jesus and and the real Jesus. The Christian journey is trying to surrender our expectations of Jesus and receive Jesus as he is and what he does. And that's what's happening here. The crowd, they're following him because he's doing signs. He's healing the sick. Great, he's meeting their earthly and physical needs. And Jesus went up on a mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Jesus often pulls away to mountains. If you're stressed out, burned out, find a mountain, eh, you're going to have to leave Minnesota. Not all of us have the money for that. Go find a hill. There's a few of them in St. Louis Park and just sit on that hill for a while. Eventually the grass will appear. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. So this is a significant time in their calendar when they were remembering their deliverance by the hand of God and the leadership of Moses out of slavery in Egypt. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? See, there's, there's this feast, the Passover feast that they want to celebrate and honor and remember. And then there's also just this reality that there's a hungry mob, a hungry crowd. How are they going to feed them? And they, I love that these people are so interested in Jesus. They so want what Jesus has that they're not thinking about their own physical needs in this moment, actually, right? They're, they're just following him. And, and Jesus anticipating, he's, that's where we're going to buy bread for these people to eat. He said this to test them, verse 6. Jesus is up to something. He's up to something more than just giving them food for the day. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. That's about eight months worth of wages, 200 denarii. So a large amount of money would not be enough to buy food for all these people. And even practically, where are we going to get it? How is this going to happen? If you, if you, you know, if we try to feed thousands of people by running to Super America, the clo- like, wouldn't work. So the money and the practicality, this is an impossible thing. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Now, some people will be like, pause and spend time here talking about Andrew and how we should just even bring our, our measly little offerings to God. I don't know, maybe, but Andrew doesn't seem to believe any. He's like, I don't know, there's that stuff, but that's not going to work. There's just a lack of faith in the disciples, but Jesus is drawing them out. He's teaching them something. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. We will see grass again, I promise you. Our hills will be grassy. 
give it three months. <laughs> Where am I? I don't have time to be making offhanded comments this morning. Uh, Okay, verse 10. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and the other gospels record this event as well, and they mentioned that there were women and children as in addition to this number, maybe ten to 20,000 people in total are following Jesus. This is the crowd wanting to see some miracles from Jesus, to receive some healing from Jesus. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Just a beautiful picture. Jesus is meeting their physical need. Their desire to celebrate the Passover feast and to be together and to have this communal meal in remembrance and also just the hunger in their bodies. Jesus meets them in that earthly desire, that physical need, and he meets it. But he's going to do something far more important, which is why I want to go all the way through verse 59 because they're tied together. So he meets their need. They gather them up. There's 12 baskets. This is representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is using this, this, this moment to point them to something really significant. Remember, it's the Passover. And there's 12 leftover baskets. It's this imagery of the, the people of God, the nations of God, the nation of Israel being full, coming to fruition and to fullness. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, remember, they're after signs. Verse 2, they were following him because of the signs that he was doing. So when they saw this sign, when they experienced what he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. The, the, the smaller groups of people who would become Jesus' true disciples, his apprentices, his followers, they would refer to Jesus as more than a prophet. They would say he's the, the, the savior of the world, the, the lamb of God. He is the Christ. So here we have this large group of people and and, and most of them just want something from Jesus. They want their earthly desires met, their physical needs met, and they're like, he's a prophet, he has power, let's follow him. And so I want to remind us that a large crowd is not always better. In fact, oftentimes a large crowd distracts us from the true Jesus, a small remnant of people who are willing to surrender to the teaching and the ways and the will and the work of Jesus is more important to the advancement of the gospel than a large crowd who's excited about what Jesus might be able to do for them. And this crowd, they, they see what he had done. They say, this is a prophet who has come into the world. They are interested. And so we should not shun the crowds, right? We shouldn't bash the seekers. Just don't be captivated by it. And then look at what, what happens in verse 15. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. There's Jesus again withdrawing to a mountain. But here, again, we see some of the earthly desire within us. Right? In the, the first movement, there, there's this earthly desire for signs, for miracles, for, for things that just feel good. And, and Jesus cares about our physical needs. He cares about meeting our earthly desires. But that's not it. He's trying to point us to something deeper. So the multiplication of fish and loaves, he's going to go on in the rest of chapter 6 to give us the teaching about him being the bread of life. That's why I want to keep these together. 
is not just about the fact that he fed them on the hillside. It's that in feeding them, he's pointing them to a different, more, more profound truth that they need. And then as a result of the signs, see, the, the, the natural people see things naturally, or, or, or the people who want control and, and power and, and relief from this world, rather than eternal satisfaction, see things worldly through an earthly lens. Jesus perceived, verse 15, that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king. And Jesus would not be a pawn in the world system. Jesus would not allow these people to bring him into Jerusalem and to overthrow the Roman oppressors and set up Jesus as the true king. He is the true king, but he's not a worldly king. Jesus tells us later in John chapter 18, verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting. Some of you need to hear that word and be reminded, his kingdom is not of this world. Stop fighting. Stop fighting the political battles and the religious battles. Jesus himself says, I, don't take me by force. Don't use me as a pawn in your religious power games and your political power games. That's not what I'm here for. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is, is like a mustard seed that as it grows, it, it grows and it grows and it becomes a tree that people can find healing and life in. It's not a top-down authoritarian, get rid of the morally bad and establish the morally good. That's not what Jesus is about. We have this earthly desire in us for good leadership, for freedom, for good politicians, for good religious institutions. That, that's, a, that's an earthly desire. But we know that the world is corrupt. Politicians are corrupt. Religion is corrupt. Jesus knows this, and he withdraws from the people so that they would not establish him as an earthly king. My kingdom is not of this world. And so even in this desire, he's pushing us towards something deeper, something greater, that there is a kingdom that is yet to come. And even now, it's among us, right? Jesus said, my kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, but it's not established in full yet. And so wait, be patient, be humble, be meek. Let the king have his way, and his way is in humility, laying his life down. Let's continue, verse 16. When evening came, Jesus went down to the sea. He got into a boat and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There's this There's this physical need and desire for safety that they have. They're out on a sea in this storm, and, and it's interesting in, in the Gospel of Mark, it records the same story, and it says that Jesus passed them by, and some people interpret that saying like Jesus let them just suffer for a while, and sometimes Jesus does that, but I think there's an allusion here to when God shows up to Moses and he says, my glory will pass you by. He's revealing himself to his chosen. I think Jesus here is revealing himself to the disciples. Remember, it's the disciples in the boat, not the crowd. He's revealing his glory to them 
so that they would recognize him and that they would find comfort in his presence. Jesus meets their earthly desire, their physical need here in calms of the storm. Jesus doesn't always do that. He does it here. He's training them. He's drawing them in. He's, He's building trust and faith and belief in them. And he says, it is I, in a similar manner to how he told Moses, I am that I am. Remember, it's the Passover. They're thinking about Moses. They're thinking about how God spoke to Moses, how God led them out of slavery with Moses at the helm, how God provided bread from heaven, which Jesus is going to go on to talk about. But know this, church family, if if you're in the midst of fear, if you're in the midst of the storm, what you need is the presence of Jesus. It is I. Do not be afraid. Move on to verse 22. Again, a transition period here. On the next day, the crowd had remained on the other side of the sea. This is just a fascinating scene. There's thousands of people that just camp out overnight. They're so, they're so, what's the word? just fascinated with what Jesus is doing and what he might be able to do for them. They stay there overnight. On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea that they had, uh, that there, and they saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples. So the disciples get out on the boat, they go out on the sea. Jesus, remember, he went up on the mountain, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. We got to find this guy. Get a bunch of boats. We're going across the sea. We're going to find Jesus. We need more stuff from him. We're interested in him. We're not, we're not sure about him, but man, we want some of his goods. We want, we want him to meet our earthly desires, our, our physical needs. That's what they want. That's the core of what they want here. Meet our physical needs. Give us our earthly desires. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I met your physical earthly desire, and you want more of that. You, you, you want more of the tangible You're not quite ready for the spiritual or you're not thinking deeply enough about what I'm doing. You seek me not because of the signs and and, and in the Gospel of John, the signs are used to point people to who the person of Jesus is and the work of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus and the salvific nature of Jesus. So they're intrigued by the signs, but he's saying, you're not quite grasping this. You just want more from me. You like me because I gave you food, and now you want more physical provision. You want your earthly desires met. Verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And we could pause there and and talk about that forever, but just hear it. Jesus says, do not work for food that perishes. Now, obviously, we go to work for a paycheck. We buy food that perishes. It's a, it's, a, it's a physical need. It's an earthly desire. Food and drink is good. Clothing, shelter is good. Jesus isn't saying to fast for the rest of your life. You will die. He's the one who made our bodies to function by food and water. But he's, he, he's using this to teach him that there's more to life than stuff. 
and fulfilling earthly desire and having our physical needs met. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? So often that's our religious question. God, what must I do? What can I do to be right with you? How how do I become whole? How do I get clean? How do I do your works? And this is like a, a good Jewish response, right? They're thinking about the Old Testament law. I have to do all the religious things so that I may be right with God. What must I do to be doing the works of God? They believe that they're saved through works, through duty, through doing, through doing, through doing. And so they ask, Jesus, what do we need to do so that we can have assurance of our salvation? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That's it. Faith, trust, belief in Jesus. Not in what Jesus does. Now, what Jesus does is connected to who Jesus is. But it's, it's very interesting that in this moment, Jesus is saying, believe in God, in him whom he sent. That's Jesus. Believe in God, believe in me. Look at John 3.16, one page over to the right. Jesus is teaching. Well, I've said this before, but there's a thesis in the Gospel of John. John's thesis is that we would believe in Jesus and have life. Jesus says this himself, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Go to John 14, verse 1, a couple pages to the right. John 14.1, it's on page 901. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Have faith, have trust in God. Have faith, have trust in me. One more, go to John chapter 20, a couple more pages to the right. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and this is the Apostle John's thesis of what Jesus has been teaching. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, that you may have faith, that you may trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you may believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is Jesus' purpose, his thesis throughout the whole book. Flip back to John chapter 6. He answers them, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe, that you trust who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The work of God is not to clean yourself up through religious rituals and rules and duties. It's not to do the work of God. The work of God is that you would receive the work of Jesus on your behalf and that you would believe that by him you are saved. He goes on, verse 30, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. So the Passover, remember as they're traveling through the wilderness, God would send manna from heaven to to meet their, their physical needs, their earthly desires for food. And as they were led out of 
Egypt, and then God provided manna from heaven. This is the Passover feast and celebration that they remember. So in the beginning of John chapter 6, when Jesus multiplies the bread, it's around the time of the Passover. This is all about bread. They're thinking God needs to provide for our physical needs. God needs to feed us. God needs to give us bread like he did in the Old Testament. We need a leader like Moses. Moses provided bread by the hand of God, and, and that's what we need here now. We need physical sustenance. We need food. We have these earthly desires. What will you do, Jesus? This is what God did in the Old Testament and what our man Moses did for us. Verse 32, And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father. And the fact here that Jesus starts calling God my Father is where some of the religious leaders start to get angry with him because normally it's our Father. But now Jesus is claiming this personal, unique relationship to God. My Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus, his flesh, he's the new manna from heaven. He's the new sustenance. He's the new one that comes to meet our physical needs and our earthly desires, but more than that, to give us eternal satisfaction and filling and fulfillment. And the people's response, I love this, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Lord, would that be our response to you, Jesus? Give us this bread, this bread of eternal life always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. One of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. Remember, God, Yahweh, came to Moses and said, I am that I am. And then throughout the Gospel of John, we have Jesus claiming to be, I am that I am, Yahweh, one with God. Here he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never be thirsty unquenchable desire that we have in the, in the physical gifts of life. Like C.S. Lewis said, it's only meant to arouse us, not to fully satisfy us. And Jesus here comes to meet us in that place and says that I have this kind of satisfaction that I can give you. I have this sustenance that I can give you that will never wear off. Yes, physically you'll get hungry again. Yes, physically you'll be thirsty again. Obviously, Jesus is using a metaphor here. He's not saying you can fast for eternity. Well, maybe for eternity. Actually, no, we're going to be feasting in eternity because God is good and he knows what is good. But he's not saying that actually in reality you will never be hungry again. He's saying there's this deeper thing going on. Life isn't about food and drink and clothing and shelter. It's about eternal salvation and security and knowing that you are loved and that you have a life after death. Verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Those of you who are afraid of losing your salvation because of your persistent sin, hear Jesus' words here. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I will never cast out. Keep coming to Jesus. Keep coming to Jesus. Keep coming to Jesus. He will never cast you out. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. He will not lose you. You may run. You may hide. You may rebel. You may backslide. Jesus hasn't lost you. 
He's the one who found you. He's the one who saved you. You can't run and hide from him. You can't lose your salvation. You can't cut it off. He says it. I, should, I, should, I shouldn't lose. I won't lose anyone who comes to me. I won't cast them out. I don't lose what God has given me. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes, there it is again, believes, who has trust, who has faith in Jesus, believes in Him, not in our own works, not in our own efforts, not in our own religiosity, but in Him, should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about this because He said, I am bread that came down from heaven. He's claiming to be God. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Like, he's just another, he's from Nazareth. How does he now say, I come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. God is sovereign in our salvation in drawing us to himself. It's his grace that woos us and draws us in. He says, I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus has been with the Father, seen with the Father, and now he's making the Father, God, Yahweh, visible to us. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 47, Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever has faith, whoever trusts who Jesus is and what Jesus does. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He's not talking about physical death. Obviously, we all have physical death, right? We all have a lifespan. He's talking about something deeper. He's using the physical to point us to the spiritual and to the eternal. I am the bread, the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I am the manna from heaven. I am the better Moses. I am the one that you should stake all of your life on. And then as we close out this morning, I'm going to read verses 52 through 59. I want you to picture communion as we do this. The bread and the cup. Obviously, they don't satisfy, right? Not even close. A little cracker, a little cup. It's a, it's a reminder, it's a pointer to the fact, I mean, even if this was a lavished meal, Right? Fogo de chao? Anybody? Okay, one person. Great. It's the best meal you'll ever have if you like meat. If you don't like meat, don't go there. Like, that's an incredible meal, but you still get hungry again after eating it. Every physical thing, every earthly thing, it, it, it's momentary satisfaction. But life isn't just about the here and now. There is an unseen reality. There's an unseen realm. And there is a, 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 an eternal existence for all of us. And Jesus gives us these elements to remind us 
that the work that you and I need to do is simply to believe the work that he did and to trust his sacrifice in our place on our behalf and in that we receive new and eternal life and satisfaction. Let's hear Jesus close this section out. And really, this actually goes all the way through chapter 6, but I'm going to do verses 60 through 71 next week because there's a great little sermon in there. There's a great sermon in every verse, right? But I don't want to spend 17 years in the Gospel of John. (laughs) Verse 52 through through 59, and let's just hear Jesus' words here with communion in mind, and then I will invite you to the table. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're thinking earthly, they're thinking worldly, they're thinking practically, and Jesus is trying to point them to the spiritual, to the eternal. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Again, for those of you who are newer to church or maybe you come from a different church background, we, we don't believe Jesus is calling us to actually eat his flesh and drink his blood to cannibalism. It's a symbolism He's saying, I am the eternal sustenance that you need. He uses his body because his body is what was lifted up upon the tree and crucified, and then his body is what was resurrected on the third day. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread live forever. Jesus, we thank you for coming, condescending to walk among us and for giving your life, your body as the bread and your blood as the cup of forgiveness. You said to us that You are the bread of life, and whoever comes to you shall never hunger, and whoever believes in you shall never thirst. And this morning, Lord Jesus, as we come to the table, I pray that we would experience the eternal satisfaction that we have, even here and now, that we would just get a little taste of it, that we would be reminded of it. And then I pray that it would propel us into this week ahead. Jesus, we thank you that you do not only provide bread for our physical hunger, but more importantly, you provide your life to satisfy us eternally, to satisfy the spiritually hungry. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would come to you this morning hungry and that we would walk away full. In your name we pray, amen.